please turn to the book of Acts. I'll be reading Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Acts 8, 1 through 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word of instruction to our souls. Father, may we enter your holy place together. For your holy place is here. By the Holy Spirit and through the blood of Christ our Savior. May we taste that all things in this world are fleeting and small and tiny and insignificant compared to the glory that you have in store for every martyr in church history and for every saint who peacefully died of old age. May you embolden your church throughout the world in these days to the glory of Jesus and to the joy of not just those in Samaria, but in every city where there are churches. Amen. In our passage, we see this morning, things in Jerusalem now really get heated up. Persecution is like never before up to this point in the book of Acts. It has exploded. That is, upon every one of those persons who held to the doctrine of Christ, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Persecution and danger was everywhere toward them in the city. 
if they had not already been thrown into jail, many, many, many Christians had to flee Jerusalem. Leave homes behind and get out of town. Persecution in our country is growing stronger every day. Particularly from the persecutors of the new sexual revolution. These revolutionaries have a self-righteous passion to shame, to humiliate, to ostracize anyone, any church, or any organization that dares to hold to the traditional, historic, biblical, Christian doctrines. That's me. And that's you. But what Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 8 teaches us is that God uses persecution. He uses persecution against His people as a means of working deeply in them, of purifying His church, and of spreading the gospel through evangelism. God's sovereignty over persecution for His purposes to, to reach lost people is not just the point of this passage, but that has been the point of persecution over the last 2,000 years everywhere the gospel has penetrated. So if you're there in Acts chapter 8, look at the beginning of verse 1. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Now remember just to catch us up Make sure we get the context. Luke has been painting the picture here that Stephen, who was one of the seven who had responsibility uh, in distribution of the food to the poor widows within the church, was also a very gifted preacher of the gospel. And he was so good with the Scripture that his fellow Jews, who were not Christians could not refute them, and they did everything they could to twist things that he said in order to drag him before the Supreme Court, the religious court, the Sanhedrin. And before the Sanhedrin, Pete, I mean Stephen preached Jesus clearly, boldly. And he told them directly that you... Jewish leaders are fighting against God. You are against the Bible. You do not hold to the law of Moses in the way that it was intended. And so they got so angry, we saw last week, that they dragged him out of a town. And then the mob threw rock after rock after rock at him until he was dead. And the chief leader of that execution, who was passionate about shutting Stephen's mouth for good. He was, in his theology, a Pharisee. He was a professional theologian. 
His name was Saul. And then Luke goes on. And there arose on that day a great, big persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all, that's the individual Christians who make up the church, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. What I want to do first is I just want to sit on that word, persecution. It's throughout the Scripture. It's an important word. This English word persecution comes from the translation of the Greek word here, diogmos. That's the noun, and then there's the verb form that you see throughout. But the word in its basic etymology, where it comes from, is just the word to pursue, to go after. So in the way it's used most often is in a negative sense, to be persecuted is to be pursued or to be harassed. People harassing or pursuing in order to silence. Shut people down from what they're doing or from what they believe or from what they represent. Persecution starts with ridicule. That is persecution. It starts on to slander. It can go to imprisonment to torture, and finally to death. But all of those things, for Christ's sake, like we see here, that brings that is persecution. Persecution was throughout the Old Testament. Abel was persecuted as a true lover of God, and he was killed for it. Joseph was persecuted and sold into slavery by those who hated him. And then, throughout Israel's history, when God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn the people to repent and to stop deserting Yahweh and going into idolatry, their reward was persecution. They were attacked. Time after time, by the rulers, by the leaders, and by the people of Israel themselves. Elijah, Jeremiah, they are examples of preachers of God's word, of God's truth. To the people, repent and he will show mercy. And they suffered persecution for it. And you come into the New Testament... And we come first to the words of our Lord Jesus. He not only warned of persecution to his followers, he promised persecution. First, in his parable of the, how the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God, of the kingdom of God, of the gospel of Christ goes forth, he said this in Matthew 13, 20 to 21. As for what was sown on rocky ground, not good soil. This is the one who hears the Word and immediately receives it with joy. 
Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or, and here comes the word, persecution arises on account of the word of the gospel of Christ, immediately he falls away. No, I'm not going to go there. See my mind go. Next. Mark chapter 10, verse 29 to 30, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And then here it comes. Along with persecutions. But, listen to the end. And in the age to come, eternal life. In Matthew 5, 10 to 12, Jesus declared, Blessed, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus says to them, and to us, rejoice. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Luke 21, 12, Jesus says, they will lay hands on you, and they will, here it is, persecute you. And he defines it here. Delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And Jesus in John 15, 20 said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, which they did unto torture and death, they will persecute you. In one final one. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, If you have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. <coughs> but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We saw last week that's exactly what Stephen did as he is bleeding profusely and is about to die. Lord Jesus, do not hold this sin 
against them. <coughs> then you move on. Jesus suffers and dies for our sins and rises from the dead and finally ascends and sits down at the right hand of God. And we open up the book of Acts, and we have already seen Peter and John were persecuted, thrown into jail, finally released after being warned. Then again, they're thrown into jail along with the rest of the apostles, and they were all beaten with whips. And it hurt. And then they were further warned, don't speak anymore in Christ's name. But they did not obey that. And now... We have come to the place where the very first Christian is actually put to death because of his testimony and preaching of the truth of Jesus Christ. And Luke tells us here, and there arose on that day Stephen's martyrdom a great, big, huge, dangerous persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And then later in Acts, he goes on, we see the persecution spread through Paul's ministry, like in Acts 13.50, when he's in the city of Antioch, of Pisidia. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the city. And we know that Paul, as Lindsay read earlier, was persecuted again and again. The great persecutor of the church became the persecuted because of his faithfulness to Christ and the truth of the gospel. And it continued on outside of the Bible. It's not written there. Under the Emperor Nero in the 60s in the Roman Empire, in the 80s, under Flavian in 110 AD, under the Emperor Trajan, and then on and on through the Roman Empire, and on and on through all the lands of the earth throughout the last 20th centuries. From one degree or another. Let's go back to our day for a moment. A little bit over three years ago, when I preached a series titled The Bible and So-Called Same-Sex Marriage, back then I quoted from Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito's dissenting opinion on the Obergefell decision, which essentially legalized same-sex marriage, changed the definition of marriage, etc., throughout this country. And he ended up being a prophet. What I quoted over three and a half years ago from Alito in his dissenting opinion, he was of the four who did not agree with the opinion of the five, he wrote this. The ruling creates serious questions about religious liberty. Many good, I can look at some of you right here, many good and decent people oppose liberty. 
same-sex marriage as a tenet of their faith. Then Alito went on to say, this ruling will be used to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy. In the course of the court's opinion, the majority compares traditional marriage laws between one man and one woman to the laws that denied equal treatment for African Americans. The implication of this analogy will be, there's his prophetic word, it will be exploited by those who are determined to stamp out every vestige of dissent from the new orthodoxy in our land. But then he got really prophetic about the dark days which lay ahead when he said this. I assume that those who cling to old beliefs will be able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes. But if they repeat those views in public, they will risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such by governments, employers, and schools. Boy, was Justice Alito right. Just over the last 10 days, the wife of the Vice President of the United States announced that she's going back into teaching. She's going to teach an art class at the same school she taught for over 12 years over a decade ago. Emmanuel Christian School. And in the climate of our country and of the elites of our country, this announcement created a huge firestorm in the media. I know, I see that look. And so if you're scratching your head thinking, how in the world could that create a firestorm? She's going to go teach an art class. It's simple. The problem is that this K through 8th grade school is not just in name only, but is actually a Christian school. In other words, this school actually holds to historic Christian teachings concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ to save sinners, and it actually holds to the moral and sexual standards of the Bible. And that, that is absolutely unacceptable. Maybe in the recesses of your home, but as the second lady of the United States, it is unacceptable for someone with such a high cultural visibility as Karen 
pants. That is what? To dare to stand for what Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years. And for it, she has been publicly ridiculed and shamed on CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, you name them. And one commentator on CNN actually suggested that Karen Pence does not anymore get secret service agents to protect her if it's being paid for by taxpayer dollars. Why? Because what she represents to those children and to this country is so horrific as she, by saying, I'm going to teach in this school, and I hold to their statement of faith, she is a hate-filled bigot, and we cannot have tax dollars support that. In other words, her Bible-believing morality. Her worldview is simply disgusting. It's deplorable. And it needs to be hidden away in the cloister of her own home, not in the public square. These revolutionary zealots they are as passionate about their self-righteous worldview as Saul of Tarsus was about his. Also, just in the last week, one of our newest theologians in the land who was trained at the Seminary of Anti-Christianism spouted off her theology with this public letter to the Vice President of the United States, quote, Mr. Mike Pence, who thinks that it's acceptable that his wife works at a school that bans LGBTQ, you're wrong. And here comes her great theology. You are the worst representation of what it means to be a Christian. The theologian is Lady Gaga. And as I sat in the Staples Center in downtown Los Angeles just five nights ago at the Elton John concert, which was a very entertaining concert, Sir Elton had to throw a bucket of ice water on the whole event by telling all 19,000 of us that he has great disdain for people like me. And Trish and Teresa and my wife who were sitting there. That is disdain for people who hold to what the Bible says on human sexuality and marriage. For people who hold to this right here. Any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman 
is sin. Sir Elton John is disgusted by the likes of me. And he went further, being the great theologian that he is, to proclaim that we evangelical, Bible-believing, church-going types like me and you, we actually are false representatives of Christianity. He's the Christian, he told us, and all of us, by implication is what he meant, who holds to the new sexual Orthodoxy, we are the true Christians, unlike those old-time traditional ones who actually make judgments about human sexual acts or many other things. He doesn't make any judgments other than the judgment that he made publicly before 19,000 people. But he proclaimed, love is the answer. And he's a Christian. And the rest who reject people like me are Christians because Jesus preached love. Love is the power and love is the answer to all the world's troubles. His implication was clear. If you are an old-fashioned, Bible-believing Christian, I, Sir Elton John, have great disdain for you. And I know this was, he is a performer. It was really good. Put everything into it. Nothing happened by accident in what was said for almost three hours of a concert. This was planned. He's doing it at every concert. I don't know how many will actually be there live, probably close to a million. This is a two-year tour of his farewell. Okay. Okay. It's, only, it's only beginning. It's only heating up in our culture. And so the question for all of us Christians is this. Will we joyfully stand for the truth in the midst of it? And more than that, more than that, will we draw closer to the Lord in prayer, in devotion, in worship, Independence because of persecution. That is one of God's designs in persecution. Has always been, is now, and will be. Because persecution to one extent or another has this capability in God's sovereign providence of intensifying the worship of His people. Of sending the roots of gospel seriousness. Do you believe now? If it costs you your job, it has the way to send the roots deep into our souls. And, as we see from our text, to focus the mission of the church on evangelism, 
hold to the only hope for other sinners, the gospel. It's right there in chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, at this point now in the book of Acts, it has been at least, at least one whole year that Jesus, back a year ago, told the apostles in chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But it's been a year. And until this great persecution led by Saul, all the ministry of the church and within the church and preaching to the unbelievers has all been happening just in that city of Jerusalem. Evidently, no one said, hey, let's go down to Gaza and preach to the people over there. Or let's go into these other cities of Judea. Or let's go over here into Samaria. But now, God took the tool of persecution to make it happen. And if missions is taking the gospel to unreached people groups, then this was missions driven by persecution. And, and it didn't just reach, as, as we see right here, to maybe 60 miles away into the outer regions of the, it's almost like a county of Samaria. Oh, it went much further because Luke tells us this later. In chapter 11, verse 19, Luke will say this of Acts. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus, the island in the Mediterranean, about 200 miles away, and Antioch, 300 miles up north. They traveled that far speaking the word to no one except Jews. God took persecution to push them out in missions. Now, if you've been a Christian long enough, decades maybe, you have known white-hot times of prayer and intimacy with the Lord and in worship and in evangelism and communal intensity around the Lord. You've known that, and you've also known dry times. Things are going well. Status quo, comfortable life, 
money's good, the wife's okay, the husband's fine, the children are doing good. And then down the road, your heavenly Father smacked you. Yeah, 10,000 ways he might have done it. Smacked you awake from your spiritual slumber through pain, suffering, conviction of your own sin. And you didn't even know you were sleeping. He used the tools of crisis and pain and conviction. And it's the same principle with persecutions. They jar you awake to seek the Lord in prayer more seriously, to serve others more intently, to give more from resources, and to yearn to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what happened in this passage. Now, there, there are voices today either saying it clearly or just acting it out that essentially, I'm talking about within Christianity as a whole, the religious community as a whole, that essentially say this, let's just, and, and that's the key word, just, let's just Love people love. In other words, only tell them Jesus loves them and He wants the best for them. And just leave it there. Do not stir the pot of the culture by addressing evil or negative things or unbiblical doctrines of the culture. And what that really means is just keep silent on the killing of babies in the womb. What it means is don't speak about human sexuality. Do not speak about homosexual activity. Do not address transgenderism. Do not speak about the foolishness out there that there are more and many more than two sexes. If these people lived in Stephen's time, they would have hated verse 2. Devout men, devout men, serious men, Holy Spirit-filled Christian men, buried Stephen. And this is what they do in their burial culture. Made great lamentation over him. People in our day, many of them would not have done that, but they might have said something like this. Why should we honor Stephen? He's the one that caused us all to be in danger now and to lose our homes and have loved ones in jail. Stephen is an unwise guy. He was called before the Jewish leadership. He should have just said, yes, I'm a Christian. 
And, and it, it's, it's a really good life, and I wish you guys would become Christians too, and left it there. But instead, Stephen felt it necessary to address peripheral issues, like the temple, and the sacrificial system, and just basic religious customs that Moses gave, and that Jesus was going to change. Why did he have to do that? He provoked them. Because he looked at them and he said hard things like you are stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and you always persecute God's prophets. Honor Stephen. But these Christians were devout were filled with the Holy Spirit. And Luke lets us know they honored him. Because they, they, they knew that it was because of what happened with Stephen that was the bullet that went kaboom and started the whole big, huge persecution now. But they also knew Stephen was led by the Holy Spirit. And thus he was to have an honorable burial. They knew that the point of the church in Jerusalem and the point of the church in our city and our nation today is not to shut up and to just peacefully go on through life. Our purpose as Christ followers, as His bride, as His church, is to be a light that shines all the brighter as the culture gets darker and darker. That's the God-honoring way. That's Stephen's way. Even though many of these people had their husbands ripped away and thrown in jail, or wives ripped away and thrown in jail, or losing their homes and having to scatter and get out of town, and we don't see anything here that the church was bitter it's Stephen. Instead, they rejoiced to preach Jesus to lost souls in other places. That's why devout men honored Stephen. The church in Jerusalem was alive. It was on fire by the power of God. Devout Men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. He, don't, don't just picture Saul here, who, who is Paul. Don't, don't just picture, he's just doing it himself. He's got authority. He's got soldiers from the temple with him. He's got gangs, and he's authorized legally. Entering house after house of Christians and dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And they suffered joyfully. 
decades later, the writer of the, what we call the book of Hebrews, he looks back at this time and he reminds these people he's writing to what they were like when they walked more closely with the Lord than they are now. And he said this in Hebrews 10. Start with verse 32. But Jewish Christians, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you remember the Spirit came upon you, you were born again, you saw with the eyes of your heart the truth of the Gospel. Remember what happened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those who are so treated. You say, I don't care. I'll expose myself. I'm with them. That's my brother. That's my sister. I believe that also. He says, look, for you, remember, you had compassion on other believers that were in prison. You fed them. You visited them. Which is a danger to you. And you joyfully, there it is, you joyfully, you joyfully accepted the stealing of your property. Plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For what you have is this. You have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive finally what was promised. In this passage here in Acts chapter 8, and also throughout 2,000 years of church history, God has expanded the joy of His people and the spreading of the gospel through persecution. Let's finish the text. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word so he gives an example, another one of the seven over the distribution of food named Philip. Philip, he went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, that's demons, crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. 
And so there was much joy in that city. Verse 4, they went about Christians. Apostles are back in Jerusalem. They didn't get scattered. They stayed there for whatever reason. But the Christians went about preaching the Word. They preached the content about Jesus. They preached the message that changed their life for time and for all eternity. They preached the same doctrines that got Stephen killed. Got many of them imprisoned and all kinds of them as they're preaching now scattered away from Jerusalem, had to leave their homes. In other words, they preached the same word. They went about announcing to other Jews in the small towns of Judea and to half-Jews in the towns of Samaria. And the result was the example he gives us here in verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. The gospel that brings persecution from the world also brings joy. A deep, everlasting joy. And you say, why such joy? Where'd that joy come from? It's right there in verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. That's it. The gospel. Jesus. It is only Jesus who has the power to deliver from demons from darkness, from purposelessness, and from the judgment day that is still to come. No wonder it caused great joy in all of those who received the Word, the Gospel. So as I close then, I just want to say this. In the Scripture and what we see and throughout 20 centuries of church history, there are lessons to be learned about persecution. And these are lessons for us American Christians to hold to today. I'm just going to give five of them. First, even though persecution here in America at this time is not to the point, not yet to the point of jail or imprisonment or death, persecution is here to a greater extent than it was 10 years ago or four years ago. Here's the point. It is a test. And it is a tool 
to weed out false Christians and false churches. Secondly, persecution, the ideologies of man, the doctrine of demons cannot, cannot ever bust down the walls of Jesus' church. Can't. You don't need to try to do something non-biblical to preserve it. Third, persecution can cause horrible Temporary pain. I don't just mean death, and I don't just mean torture, which are horrible. It's a horrible thing to lose your job for your faith. It's a horrible thing to be slandered and ridiculed. Don't belittle. It can do that. But know this. Our God, our loving Father, uses it for the good of His people. And then through them for the salvation of souls. Four. It is in the times of persecution, the times of suffering, fear, vulnerability, that our Father is calling us to intimacy with Himself. As individuals, And then as we gather, as His people, He's calling us to get real. To be stripped for love, for worldliness, and comfort. These are times for diving into the deep pool of God Himself, and they're worth it. And so finally, in our day, then, let us take heed to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Also speaking to our sister in the Lord, Karen Pence. Since then, Believer, Karen, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. That's what we have. Okay. Since it's true, let us hold firm our confession of faith. Let's pray. Father, there is that old saying that a hangman's noose 
has its way of concentrating the mind. Individual sufferings or pains, small persecutions or large, have a way of focusing us. But all of that is to naught unless your Holy Spirit is doing the ongoing, deepening work within our hearts, our souls, our minds, our lives. I beg of you, Father. I beg of you. Work in us, your people. Deeply. Deeply. To the glory of Jesus To the good of lost and dying souls who do not yet know you, but will through us. Oh, thank you, Father. For you are good. And your glory, which you've promised to all of us who have fled to your Son, your glory endures forever is the prize which lay up before us. Amen.